Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, the weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Give Your Money to Caesar, Give Yourself to God. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, October the 16th, 2011. Last month I sold a family coin collection to a local dealer. The owner of the store specializes in coins from antiquity, especially from those, those from the Greek and Roman periods. There in his cases before me were hundreds of coins from the Roman emperors who reigned during the days of Jesus and the early believers, Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, Nero, and on and on. With over 4,000 coins in his inventory, I like to imagine that maybe one or two of them actually circulated among Jesus and his friends. The different coins were similar in one respect. In a graphic display of political hubris and economic might, they all bore the image of their emperors. The coins reminded me that the stories of Jesus are not ethereal platitudes. Rather, the Jesus stories recall confrontations that were embedded in concrete time and place. In this week's Gospel, Jesus tells a story about taxes and illustrates it with a coin from the reign of Tiberius. In doing so, he confronts three major idolatries of both his day and ours, money, the state, and even religion. Like us today, the Jews of Jesus' day were saddled with onerous taxes. In Matthew 17, 24-27, we read about a temple tax. They also paid custom taxes and taxes on land. And in the Gospel of Matthew for this week, a controversy arose about yet another tax, an, an annual tribute tax that was paid to Rome. And so we read in Matthew twenty-two seventeen, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Why should poor peasants in Israel send their hard-earned money all the way back to Rome and its emperor? As you might expect, and also like us today, the Jews of that day disagreed about how to answer this question. Those whom we might call realists collaborated and cooperated with Rome and paid the tax. Maybe they did this out of conscience, even a sense of civic duty, or maybe as a survival strategy. Who wanted undue attention from Rome, after all? On the other hand, the idealists of a more nationalistic bent resisted, resented, and protested Roman economic exploitation out of principle. Think, for example, of the 17th century Quakers. The Pharisees, who despised Rome, and the Herodians, as their name implies, who cooperated with Rome, were an opposing sex. So it's no surprise that what they really wanted was not an honest answer to a complicated question, but rather, says the Gospel, to trap Jesus in his words. That, in fact, seemed easy enough. 
If Jesus agreed that the Jews should pay taxes to Caesar, that sounded like capitulation to the oppressive Romans and a renunciation of Jewish nationalism. He would have lost his audience. But to answer in the negative so as to encourage tax dodgers was political sedition that would have jeopardized his ministry and endangered anyone who followed his advice. In an important aside, we should remember that this was one of the charges that led to Jesus' criminal execution. We read in Luke 23, verse 2, This man opposes paying taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ, a king. It was a false charge, but one based on Jesus' many subversions of money, politics, and power. In fact, one of the principal criticisms against the early Christians was that they were atheists. Atheists because they refused to bow down to Caesar, to participate in the cult of imperial worship, that they made the subversive confession, Jesus is Lord, which is to say Caesar is not Lord. And they practiced what eventually was branded an illegal non-state religion. And so the simplest Christian confession is fraught with economic and political implications. The trick questions from the Pharisees and the Herodians elicited a trick answer from Jesus. He asked them for the coin that was used to pay the state tax, and then he asked whose image it bore. Most likely the coin in question bore the image of the Emperor Tiberius, who ruled Rome during those years from A.D. 14 to A.D. 37. One side of the coin would have deified Tiberius as a son of the divine Augustus. The other side would have honored him as the Pontifex Maximus, or chief priest of Roman polytheism. Which is to say that the two sides of the coin celebrated absolute religious and civil authority for Tiberius. To a nationalistic Jew who confessed a radical monotheism, such a graven image was religiously offensive and politically humiliating. Certainly many people in the crowd would have been repulsed at the political, religious, and economic implications of honoring a pagan god by paying a tax to him. What should a conscientious Jew do? How would Jesus respond to this lose-lose proposition? When Jesus' questioners said that the coin bore the image of Caesar, he replied with a cryptic and enigmatic answer. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Rather than making an inflammatory political statement by denouncing Rome, Maybe Jesus sought to evade their trap with a dismissive shrug, something like, if the coin belongs to Caesar, let him have it. Who cares? It's only money. In this scenario, Jesus refused to take their bait. We might even imagine Jesus taunting his questioners by pocketing the coin. But what about the second half of his advice? 
What do we owe God? Merely a temple or state tax? Or maybe everything, which is far more than money. I like the conclusion of the New Testament scholar Marcus Borg. He writes, This text offers little or no guidance for tax season. It neither claims taxation is legitimate nor gives aid to anti-tax activists. It neither counsels universal acceptance of political authority nor its reverse. But it does raise the provocative and still relevant question. What belongs to God? And what belongs to Caesar? And what if Caesar is Hitler, or apartheid, or communism, or global capitalism? What is to be the attitude of Christians toward domination systems, whether ancient or modern? And so, at issue is not merely my economic relationship to the government, but my existential relationship with God. On that ancient coin was an image of Caesar, and merely money is owed to him. On the other hand, and far more importantly, every human being bears the image of God implying that I render to God wholly and without condition my entire self. So pay your taxes to Caesar and give yourself to God. For books this week, we go to the country of Liberia in West Africa. The author is Agnes Fala Kamara Umuna, along with Emily Holland. The title of the book, And Still Peace Did Not Come, a memoir of reconciliation. New York, Hyperion, 2011, 302 pages. For 14 years, civil war ravaged the tiny country of Liberia. In the first phase of the conflict from 1989 to 1996, Charles Taylor and Prince Johnson overthrew the government of Samuel Doe and even recorded the grisly execution of Doe with an infamous tape that later sold in Monrovia's marketplaces. Taylor was then elected president in 1997 but two years later, other forces ousted him. By some estimates, 10% of the population was killed. 25% fled the country. Starvation, systematic rape, torture, mutilation, and Charles Taylor's cocaine-crazed child soldiers who wore outlandish costumes. These are what most people remember. For 14 years, writes Agnes Umuna, it was like the last day on earth. Umuna has written an eloquent testimony that bears witness to the horrific suffering. In the first third of the book, she tells her personal story during those 14 years. Taylor resigned in 2003, and today he's on trial at The Hague for crimes against humanity and war crimes. 
Then in 2005, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf was elected president as the first woman head of state in Africa, and a Truth and Reconciliation Commission started a two-year study. Umuna, in fact, is a self-effacing hero in the slow process of national healing. She started a radio program called Straight from the Heart, sponsored by the United Nations Mission in Liberia. It's become an instrument of reconciliation. On the radio program, Umuna collected and told the stories of the war. She would interview a guest, and then people from across the country would call in with their responses. It was natural to give voice to the victims. What set Umuna apart, however, was that she also encouraged the perpetrators of violence to tell their stories, and in particular, the child soldiers the ways they were abducted and recruited, how and why they committed such atrocities, and how they felt about it now. She also built a community center and feeding program for the child soldiers and became their auntie. <clears throat> in fact, each chapter in this book begins with first-hand narratives by both perpetrators and victims. Giving voice to the victims was one thing, but befriending the victimizers was quite another. For many Liberians, it was cathartic. Acknowledging what happened was a necessary, if not sufficient, part of peace. Other people thought it was outrageous, and still others considered it futile and a waste of time. For Amuna, there are no easy answers or quick fixes just hard questions and necessary compromises. What is forgiveness? How do you give and receive it? What are the steps to national reconciliation? Telling and listening the stories is a way to begin. And as a footnote, for a film version of the central role of women in Liberia's national reconciliation, See the documentary film by the title, Pray the Devil Back to Hell. It's available on Netflix. Again, the title of the book, And Still Peace Did Not Come, a memoir of reconciliation. Agnes Fala Kamara Umuna. <clears throat> For film this week, we go to Lebanon in a French-Canadian film called Ensemble. When Nawal Marwan died, her will instructed her twin children, Jean and Simon, to deliver sealed letters to a brother they never knew they had and to a father they thought was dead. Only they, after they fulfilled that sacred request, could they give their mother a proper burial. This burdensome mission requires Jean and Simon to reconstruct a dark and hidden family history that was lived out in the equally dark political history of Lebanon's civil war of the 1970s. The film is a painful reminder of just how tragic war is and what it does to people. 
but also an example of how the worst hatreds and horrors cannot extinguish human grace and goodness. Those sealed letters are finally delivered and opened, and when they are, there is light even in the darkness. Ensemble, which is French for scorched or destruction by fire, was nominated for an Oscar as Best Foreign Language Film. The movie is in French and Arabic with English subtitles. And for poetry this week, we've posted a poem called A Future Not Our Own. It's a poem in memory of Oscar Romero, 1970 to 1980. Romero was Archbishop of San Salvador in El Salvador and was assassinated on March 24, 1980, while celebrating the Mass in a small chapel in a cancer ward where he lived. A future not our own. It helps now and then to step back and take a long view. The kingdom is not only beyond our efforts, it is beyond our vision. We accomplish in our lifetime only a fraction of the magnificent enterprise that is God's work. Nothing we do is complete, which is another way of saying that the kingdom always lies beyond us. No statement says all that could be said. No prayer fully expresses our faith. No confession brings perfection. No pastoral visit brings wholeness. No program accomplishes the church's mission. No set of goals and objectives include everything. This is what we are about. We plant the seeds that one day will grow. We water the seeds already planted, knowing that they hold future promise. We lay foundations that will need further development. We provide yeast that produces effects far beyond our capabilities. We cannot do everything, and there is a sense of liberation in realizing this. This enables us to do something, and to do it very well. It may be incomplete, but it's a beginning, a step along the way, an opportunity for the Lord's grace to enter and do the rest. We, never, we may never see the end results, but that is the difference between the master builder and the worker. We are workers, not master builders, ministers, not messiahs. We are prophets of a future, not our own. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, October the 16th, 2011. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.